Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Discover More, where we strive to accelerate the learning process together through intentional dialogues. My name is Benoit. And my name is Aiden. This podcast was built on the foundation of approachable guests, synthesized experiences, and relatable lessons that will help you grow throughout your journey. Thank you for tuning in this week. We hope you enjoy and continue to discover more. And the decision to stay on the team was identifying a victim versus a victor mentality. I had two choices. I could choose to be a victim of my situation and blame everything on my coach, blame everything on my circumstances, or I could choose to stay. I could choose to fight to get my spot back. I could choose to work my way back up. Good morning, everyone. Uh, Welcome to another episode of Discover More with us. Uh, For this week's episode, we have our guest, Amir, and he is a mutual friend of ours, uh, Anna, who is a head coach at Orange Theory, and she recommended having Amir on the show for his experiences, and we do believe that he has plenty of values and plenty of lessons to share from his upcoming and from what he does. So, Amir, uh, welcome to the show, and yeah, can you give uh, the people like a quick introduction of who you are and what you represent? Yeah, thanks for the intro, Benoit. Uh, so, yep, so my name is Amir. Uh, I actually, I reside in Northern Liberties right here in this beautiful city, Philadelphia. I currently work full-time in the healthcare space, and then I also, uh, on a part-time basis, uh, work with people one-on-one and in a group setting uh, as a personal trainer. Uh, so Anna spoke really highly about you guys. I got a chance to check out a couple of your episodes, and um, I'm super excited to uh, to share my experiences, and hopefully we can all discover more. Absolutely, man. Yeah, we're really excited to have you here. So one of the things that we talked about recently is your experience as an Indian American within the fitness space. I think you mentioned that's kind of a rarity. Could you tell us a little bit about that? So yeah, no, that's a great question, Aiden. Growing up, education was heavily touted in my family. I have a lot of cousins, aunts, uncles that are in medicine, that are in law, that are in engineering. So, I, you know, I feel fortunate to be, you know, a part of that. Me personally, I I never felt like any of those fields were were fields that I could relate to. And I just fell in love with fitness and strength and conditioning while I was uh, working on becoming a better football player. You know, I was introduced to strength and conditioning as a football player, and that's how I was exposed to that field. You know, being a trainer was never really recognized in our culture as a career option. So I figured the only way it would be recognized is if someone actually did it. Gotcha. And I think being uh, Asian American myself and a lot of people who are not of the Indian or Asian culture descendants, it's hard for them to relate to the type of scrutiny, the type of pressure we face from our parental and cultural expectations, right? Absolutely. So, and you talked earlier that you are the black sheep of the family and you are the quote unquote outlier and you're the one who represented a unique path that was not common among your families because everyone else was practicing medicine, law, engineering, et cetera, you name it, right? Because obviously you yourself and myself were the model minority that people look at. So I think it would be interesting too for you to share a little bit more about how you maneuvered and how you navigated between that pressure about pursuing your personal purpose, a mission, your your calling versus what parents or what the culture wants you to behave. I think as I was leaving high school and going into college, I think I felt more of that 
a cultural identity conflict. But I was always had a, a big why. My motivation to be a trainer meant a lot to me and it was very close to me. And kind of like what I said earlier, I was exposed to fitness by being a football player. And I saw what fitness and strength and conditioning is able to do uh, for an athlete. I was not born with any talents. Uh, I was not, I'm not genetically gifted. I needed to improve my physical performance in order for me to get on the field. And so uh, that's how I started working out. And so I saw, I saw what strength and conditioning was able to do for myself. When I first started playing football, uh, I started in my sophomore year of high school. Uh, I sat right bench on the junior varsity team. No experience, easily pushed around, you know, easily bullied, low confidence. I wasn't able to just build myself physically with the weight room, but I was also able to build myself mentally. And I saw the change that it created for me, and I saw how significant that was. And I knew that because I've gone through this change in my life, I can help others go through it. And that's what motivated me to be a trainer. Definitely. I think the one thing that you mentioned that really sticks out to me is both the physical and the mental side of it. The physical component of exercise is obvious to everybody. You know, like if you work out, if you put the time in, then the changes will come. But the mental side, I think, is almost the more valuable. This one podcast I listen to really likes to pose the question of like, what do you think of the prospect of a pill that would automatically give you all of the aesthetic and physical components of great workout routine. Do you think that would be harmful or helpful? You know, if everyone in the world could just buy this one pill and get six pack abs, shredded shoulders, the whole nine. But I think that almost would become hazardous because most of the benefit of exercise comes from the time you put in, the discipline it builds, the confidence that it builds. Absolutely. So I'm really curious for like what component of the mental side really stuck out to you? What did it teach you outside of just getting bigger on the football field? Who did it allow you to become? How did it change the way you see the world? You know, I want to dive in a little bit to the mental side that exercises both had for you growing up and then has for you now. That's a, that's a great observation. So strength training takes a lot of patience. Yeah. <laughs> you actually grow and recover when you sleep. You know, the actual exercise is just a stimulus. So it takes time. It takes a lot of time to get stronger. It takes a lot of attention. There's a lot of attention to detail that goes into it. I think mental toughness is also something that you gain through strength and conditioning. And you learn how to deal with adversity. You know, when you have 200, 300 pounds on your back and you're squatting for 10 reps and you get to the eighth rep and now you got to crank out the last two and you feel like you can't do it. What are you going to do? You know, are you... Are you, are you going to fight for those last two reps or are you going to give up? The ability to stand up, whether it's with that last squat or you had to bail on the last one, really just to overcome the difficulties, the stressors, whatever that may be, whether yeah. it's in the gym or outside the gym. And you can apply that in so many areas of life. We all go through our routine where, you know, sometimes you wake up and you may not feel motivated to do something or, or maybe we're in the process of trying to achieve something and a few setbacks come our way. I think finishing the last two reps on a back squat can also be tied into maybe studying another hour or two for that test that you're preparing for. Yeah, I heard and listened to an interview done with Richard Branson, the billionaire, obviously Virgin Mobile founder, the, the business mogul, and he attributes a lot of his uh, success to his fitness routine, right? Yeah. And I think he's not talking about 
that, oh, he was able to become a billionaire or amass tremendous level of success because of those curls or because of those benches. But I think like the mental fortitude that we're talking about, I think it's having that clear priority about self-care, right? Because I think gym is a avenue of self-care, both mentally and physically. And for Richard Branson, he was able to understand what really matters is his health. And then you have to get your health straight, like mind, body, and spirit. You have to get your mind clear, body healthy, to get the spirit moving. Strength training or gym routines are working on so much more than just fitness, so much more than the physical aspect of just cranking off the eighth rep. And one thing that I always talk about is uh, last set, best set, especially after a lot of heavy weights, you're fatigued mentally and physically. So for you to be able to hit that 10th rep after the nine heavy sets before you, I think it, it says a lot. Absolutely. And I think it, it does teach and train and fine tune a person's uh, mental fortitude, uh, mental space, physical space, all, all the, the whole thing. Uh, have you guys ever heard of Joe DeFranco? Yeah. So he's the big strength coach, like West Coast Barbell, I think. I think he's on it now, actually. Okay. In, in Texas. He's trained so many athletes. He's trained pro football players. He's trained Brian Cushing, Triple H from the WWE. He was talking about how some of these guys, like Triple H, for example, I mean, he has a crazy work schedule, right? He's a, he's a C, I believe he's a, he's a COO of the company. The guy's working all the time. You know, and that's also a common excuse too that sometimes you see from a lot of people is, oh, I don't have time to work out. But so anyways, you bring it back to a guy like Triple H. Uh, so Joe DeFranco was talking to Triple H about how fitness routine is at the center of their lives and it's a part of their identity. Putting your health and wellness at the center of your life and then having everything else revolve around that. How it's had such a positive impact for him, how, how they also feel like they're performance in all areas of their life are able to improve, you know, by putting health and wellness at, at the center. So imagine if everyone was able to accept the identity of, you know, taking responsibility of their own bodies. I think it's powerful because it provides such structure and routine in a day that might be chaotic. If he's a COO and bouncing around between different meetings, not really having control of what's going on in his day, that fitness routine is an hour where he has control over what he wants to do, progress over what his routine looks like. It really reminds me of one quote that I shared on a previous episode. It's sooner or later, health becomes your biggest concern. So let that sink in for a minute. At some point in your life, health becomes the number one concern. And I think it behooves everyone to make that sooner than later, because then health will, like you said, become a part of your identity. And I think there's something to be said and uh, reflected upon the idea of having health as your identity. If you continuously say, I'm a healthy individual, I take care of my body, that inevitably gets ingrained in the way that sickness shows up, in the way that your routine show up, the way you show up to the day, which I think is a really important thing to consider. And I know that you mentioned on it the where DeFranco was training. I personally love that company. They're one of my favorite places to get content, favorite places to get supplements. And their ethos or their model is total human optimization. So Ben mentioned the mind, body, and spirit. And that's really, they want to optimize all elements, both the mind, the body. They don't just say, go work out, go do kettlebell swings. They say, meditate, take a cold shower, then do your swings, and then journal for a half hour. So I'm really curious as to, outside of the gym specifically, what does that ethos of total human optimization mean to you? 
I think living a holistic lifestyle outside of the gym is very important too. And I know one of the things that I like to do is uh, I like to read. I'm not, I was never really a fan of novels. Um, I always like to read books that I can apply, you know? So I always find myself in the, the self-help aisle a lot. I try to read at least like one new book at least a month. I've been doing a lot of yoga recently too, mm. uh, which has just been helping with my movement patterns and helping with all the natural stresses. I think it can be subjective. Obviously having your workout routine is important, but as individuals, we should always explore more. And all these things that I talked about, I didn't gain a liking to them until I explored them one day. Absolutely. So. Any, we're equally as interested in books. That's one of the things that ultimately brought our friendship together was just reading books, largely self-help ones. I mean, occasionally dabble in a novel or two if you're on the beach or something, but we're really curious. Any books come to mind of ones that were really powerful that you read recently or even all-time favorites, something you're reading right now? I really like uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. That's a book that I try to reread at least like every six months. And the reason why I like that book is because when it was introduced to me at a young age, you know, when you're young, you're naive, you don't have a lot of life experiences, but to be able to digest something that's objective and something that will literally impact your life and kind of help steer your thoughts in a way which can be beneficial for yourself, I think is very important. I know in Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, one of the things in the beginning, it actually talks about how his son was not an achiever in high school and he was able to share his experiences on how they were raising his son. They kept raising him with the idea that he was not capable. So anytime that you know he would play a sport or participate in an activity, they would always cheer him on and, and give him all these positive reinforcement, but what they what they weren't doing was just giving him space to be himself. And also letting him make mistakes and realizing those mistakes himself. So when I read that portion, it actually really helped me as a, as a coach and as a manager because it made me realize that you have to let people be themselves and you have to let people fail in order to give feedback and in order for one to grow. I know there's the coaching saying of meeting your clients where they are. They're ready for change, what their current circumstances are. What was the habit that that story was telling? Yeah, it was more of embracing failure, okay. you know, and giving people space. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think absolutely, I think if you're if you're a coach, a manager, and you're you're working on you're working with someone, and whatever it is you're working on, I mean, it it has to be a give and take, you know. It just can't be do this or else, <laughs> you know. That would be a dictatorship. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so uh, I think just giving people room to fail, but also giving guidance is what I found to be a good balance. That's like the people management piece, right? We talked about this with another guest of ours and he says that he's not a fan of the terminology or the saying of people management because you're not managing people. You're managing their circumstances. You're managing where they are in life, right? But you're not really managing or manipulating who they are as people, actually that's dictatorship. And yeah, I think that's powerful. And I want to go back to like a, to earlier your story. You, you said that you experienced quite a few failures in high school and ultimately that strength and conditioning in the gym became your coping mechanism and became your outlet to better yourself. Can you share about a particular like failure that you had in mind in high school? Because I know you told us about a couple of defeating ones in, off the mic. 
So can you share about maybe the biggest setback experience or the failure that truly uh, crafted your identity as a, as a coach or gave you that mindset to want to help the others? Definitely. When I first got exposed to being a football player, I loved it. I loved the environment. I loved the culture. I loved the sport. I've always loved the sport. I just never really applied myself. And so uh, after my first season, I realized that I needed to work on myself. You know, I really needed to get in the gym. I needed to... I needed to work hard, I needed to get faster, I needed to get bigger and stronger. My goal was to always start my senior year. That was like my goal. Like I wanted to be starting, I wanted to be on the varsity squad, like I wanted to get my reps in. And I wanted to have fun. Most importantly, it's all about having fun. So I mean, I played the sport, you know, that's the beauty of it. You know, you play the sport to have fun. So I finally get to the dance my senior year, and I start getting reps in the varsity team, and then I actually end up being a starter. Right, so they put me on the starting lineup. Um, so it was four seniors and one junior. We scrimmage Cherokee High School. It's a really big high school in South Jersey. And one of the guys I went up against, really big dude. And uh, so I played offensive line when I was in high school. And I wasn't, I wasn't that big. Again, I wasn't that athletic in high school. Now I have, I, I mean, I have like probably the biggest challenge in front of me. I have this guy who's like six six. He's probably 250, 260. You know, he's got at least like 60 pounds on me. And it was, it was not good. I mean, he made me look really bad. Um, I looked really bad on film. You know, the next day when we had our film series, uh, I got reamed out, you know, by my coaches. You know, they lost faith in me. They didn't think that I, I could kind of hold my own ground. They lost their confidence in me. And with that, I lost my spot. You know, it's something that I had been working for two years with one goal to have that taken away. It was devastating to me at the time. And I was only 17 and football was important to me. So I'm sure a lot of people are listening to this and they might think, oh, well, you know, it's just a high school of sport. Well, to me, it was, it meant a lot, you know, it meant a lot because I was a minority, right? Because there, there weren't a lot of Indians on the football team because it's what I wanted. And because I've been working for it for the last two years. So to have that taken away, was devastating and I thought about quitting you know I was like look I I spent two years working towards this I don't want to sit on the bench I know that I'm better like I know that I can do this I know I can start like I had one bad game I know I deserve to be out there Uh, that was really hard that was really really hard for me to deal with I was on the verge of quitting and my best friend still my best friend now but we played football together and he kept me from quitting. He was like, dude, I'm not going to finish the season without you. I was like, yeah, you know what? You're right. Even though I didn't get what I want, I still want to be a part of the team. And the decision to stay on the team was identifying a victim versus a victor mentality. I had two choices. I could choose to be a victim of my situation and blame everything on my coach, blame everything on my circumstances, or... I could choose to stay. I could choose to fight to get my spot back. I could choose to work my way back up. And initially, I had accepted that victimhood mentality and where I felt like I didn't have control over my circumstances and I felt that I was a victim. And I obviously didn't have control over the circumstances because it wasn't my decision to take me off. It was someone else's. But if I take my energy, my time, and I focus that on aspects that are outside of my control, where is that going to get me? That's not going to get me anywhere. But if I can take the time and energy and focus on what is in my control, which is showing up to practice, 
which is being committed, you know, which is showing up on time, putting in the reps. Eventually, I'm sure I would have another opportunity to be able to prove myself again. So at that point, I decided that I was going to be Victor and that I was not going to let the circumstances dictate my future. So I decided to stay on with the team, whatever it took. And then around the third week, the player that they replaced me with wasn't doing a good job. And so my coach immediately put me back in and uh, I played really well that game and I kept my spot ever since. That's a really powerful story, man. I think a lot of us have heard of the victim mindset, right? I am the victim of my circumstances, woe is me, all of that kind of things. But up until talking to you, I'd never heard of like the victor mindset. And it gives me a lot of like stoic philosophy vibes of just doing as much as you can for what's in your control, really just focusing on the controllable variables. And to me, like your story represents so much more than football. Just how we said health is so much more than fitness. It's like choosing to be a victim in whatever it is, career, relationships, work, whatever that thing is, it's victimhood versus victorhood. I'm really glad you brought in that other side of the coin because sometimes getting out of the victim mindset is like one whole process, but then really flipping the narrative. It's, I think, one thing to exist outside of the victim mindset, but to really embrace the victor mindset is almost a whole nother approach, a whole nother mindset. My coach, Nick Boletto, who we've had on the show, has a slogan of your results are in direct proportion to your beliefs. And I think it's exactly that. If you had believed that you weren't supposed to continue starting, if you had quit the team, your results never would have reached that level. But because you embrace that victor belief, that victor mindset, you were ultimately able to regain your starting position and have everything work out the way that you wanted. So I'd like to kind of dive down this victor versus victim rabbit hole a little bit and ask how you've seen it playing out in everyday life, whether that's in your own circumstances or even as a trainer. Have you seen this with clients that you've had? Of, I think with clients, definitely people I've worked with. I know time can be an issue. You know, my job, you know, I, I work so much. You know, I don't, I don't have time to, to work out. You know, I have kids. I have two kids I need to watch. And by all means, I'm not, I don't want to be naive to a situation. Everyone has different circumstances and situations, but do you let those circumstances and situations control you or do you control your situation and your circumstances? With a victimhood mentality, I think it's important to identify that when we embrace victimhood, it's almost as if we produce the outcome with, without even actually acting towards it. It's almost as if we've, we've already acted on something that hasn't even happened. And it's not helpful. Again, and, and everyone's situation and circumstance is different in life. But if we spend the time and energy and focusing on what we can control and focusing on what we can do, we can find ourselves in a much better situation. Uh, I could say just even growing up, one of the things that my dad taught me early on and I feel like this is through his example, and especially him being a, an immigrant from India, being a minority in this country. One of the things that he taught me early on is that if you want to achieve something in life, no one is going to hand it to you. Like you, you have to work for it. I know it's very simple. Like it sounds very simple, but when I, when I look at his situation, you know, like him being an immigrant, him being a minority, him working two jobs at one point, just so me and my siblings could could live comfortably. My dad, I've never seen him ever come home and complain about working hard and, and I've never ever seen him embody 
uh, victimhood mentality and think that like the system is working against him. Again, being an immigrant and being a minority. Yeah, like Aiden talked about, I also never heard the victor. I mean, it makes sense, literally being victorious and being victor in life. And I think that you talked about how don't let the circumstances control you, right? You want to be the master of those circumstances. And it's also when you choose to be a victim and when you embrace that victimhood mindset, you're giving your power away. That's why yes. I always say it. Like you want to take control by focusing on the controllable variables by focusing on what you have control over, which is sometimes not a lot. I mean, we don't have control over life. We don't have control over our skin color. We don't have control of the zip code we live in or the genetic we talked about. And I played also in varsity in high school, uh, all four years. Well, I played JV and then varsity. So I definitely share that passion and love for football. And I think what we talked about earlier fitness is merely an outlet for us to rediscover and to better ourselves right and then that outlet simply happens or delivers through gym equipments or training or the weights whatever they may be and i think in a similar fashion sports and in particular football has taught me a lot about things in life and it sounds like to you of almost quitting after having that one setback of losing your dream losing your goal to with the help of your friend being your accountability buddy, having your friend cheering you on to reclaiming that spot. I'm sure he taught you a lot. And I think it also talks about that, whether it's sports or whether it's weight or whether it's training, it teaches you different things. They're like the instruments of the universe. I think through football, you learned the importance of not quitting. You learned the importance of accountability, right? Being accountable to your actions, your beliefs, and being accountable to your dream. Because I'm sure if you quit, you, you might have felt good at the time. Because to you, you're like, oh, I got my power back. I took control of my circumstance by quitting. You know, like, fuck the coach or fuck whatever. That's 660 with 250 pounds. And I think that's what Victor mindset is by reclaiming what you can and by uh, getting on top and staying on top of your circumstances, which you also achieved through not quitting. Just to uh, continue on that tangent, I know that you have a full-time job in sales and healthcare space, and you also work part-time because of your passion to refuel your purpose is through coaching different clients. Uh, off the mic, you told us your experience that you wanted to become a head coach because that's where your passion resided in, and you were so passionate about bettering the client's life or transforming someone else's life as how your coach had impact on you growing up. Can you share the experience about how you had an opportunity and then you went in and you became a head coach of some sort. And I think that story will tell a lot of values and we would love for you to share. Very fortunate to have the head coach opportunity presented to me a handful of times in the past couple of years and I never took them and I always felt like there was a void. I just didn't want to look back in my life and think that I missed out on an opportunity, especially to do something that, that I really liked and I really enjoyed, which is coaching and teaching. And so like initially when I started training with Orange Theory, I mean, I was just part time and there was only like six studios. An opportunity was presented to myself, very fortunate and very lucky, uh, about a year ago. And it was the fourth time that it was presented to me. And I, and it was every time that I said, no, I'm not interested, I would always have that second thought. Like, oh man, what if I actually did do this? You know, and, and, I, and I was like, you know what? I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to do it. So... I want to see what life is like on the other side. I want to be full-time, and I'm, I'm just going to dive full force into it. And what was that experience like once you dove right into it? Did it 
I'm sure you had expectations and or preconceptions on what this thing was going to be. I mean, you said it was presented to you three times. You must have had some hesitations about this jumping in kind of thing. You must have had expectations of what the job would look like. What did come out on, on the other side? Once you were standing up on the podium as the head coach, what did that look like? How did you respond? How did you yeah. feel? So it was, it was great. It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. I mean, I got, I got to teach more classes. I got to, I feel like I got to meet more people. I think working with the coaches uh, has always also been one of my favorite parts. Coaching, mentoring, guiding the other trainers that are on, um, on staff. So it was overall a, a phenomenal experience. I think for me, what I realized was that as I was a couple months into it, is that my true passion is really for just coaching and working with others. So after spending more time in that role, I realized there were certain aspects to the, uh, there were certain aspects that were hindering me from doing what I truly love to do, and that's working with people one on one. It's a really powerful observation because I think it really illustrates the powerful idea that the beauty is in the attempt or trying the thing often allows you to realize a lot more than you knew before. I was just talking with a friend of mine who had moved across the country to Arizona uh, to pursue kind of a dream job, but only after moving across the country did he realize how important family was to him. Similar to you, you didn't realize that autonomy was a big reason why you loved coaching until you had the coaching job that was less autonomous, right? You know, I think our values surface when we try new things, which I think is kind of like the reason why we're always trying to do new things, kind of like the ethos of discover more is to discover more of these values, discover more of what comes up when trying new things. So that's what really comes to mind with that story of in that attempt, you were able to get that perspective. And if you hadn't taken that leap, even if there were like some intricacies or complexities to the role that you might not have aligned with, you have the perspective on the other side. You realize that autonomy is really important to you. Yeah, I would have never known this until actually doing it. You know, I would have never known unless I had tried. So I 100% agree with you. I think your values do surface when you explore, you know, something new. Yeah, I want to echo that for a bit. And I think acting or doing is the fastest pathway to discovery. And we talked about this before where there is this thing called I'll be happy when syndrome. Right, it's when you postpone happiness on the hinge of the other side. So for example, I'll be happy when I get a girlfriend, or I'll be happy when I get this new job, or I'll be happy when I get a raise. For you, Amir, it was I'll be happy and I want to minimize my regrets by taking a stab or trying this role, which is full-time head coach at Orange Theory, right? And then like what Aiden talks about, only through doing, only through fulfilling that checkbox, you realize, although there are components and parts where really fulfills your identity of coaching, gave you the avenue and gave you the power and the outlets to coach other people, to instill the educational piece, trying to better your clients' lives, whatever that may be, you are able to realize that there are other parts that you loved more than just being a head coach. I think that speaks to what you do now, right? You have a full-time job at sales and healthcare space, and now you have this full absolute autonomy where you get to design, you get to coach your clients on a one-on-one basis, which is what you love the most. And I think all these only happen because you had the audacity, you had the dream, and you wanted to cross that off by trying out at first. And of course, you are deeply privileged and you are fortunate to even have 
someone to pitch you to become their head coach four times, right? Oh, absolutely. Very thankful, very grateful for the opportunity, yeah. Yeah, like if I if I was the owner and I asked you to be my head coach three times, you said, no, I'm like, fuck this guy. I'm not gonna, <laughs> I'm not gonna ask him for the fourth time. But I think you learned a lot more through you at least trying it out because like you talked about, if you never answered that call in, if you never answered that invitation to unveil that curtain, right? You'd have never known and you would have had that lingering regret probably for the rest of your life. Yeah. So I think your story talks about the power of attempt. And as cliche as this sounds, like the pursuit of happiness lies within the pursuit. And I forgot the exact term, but it's called the law of number seven. What that means is in a lot of clinical psychology trials and experiments, they've asked the participants to rate their experience. If it's a negative experience, rate it how painful was it, how unenjoyable was it. If it was a positive experience, rate it from zero to 10 as well, from how positive the experience is. And across all these experiments in the clinical realm, the most common answer that people chose for both negative and positive experience was number seven. And ask yourself, when you're rating your own experience as something like, how was the dining experience or you went out on this first date? I think all three of us could agree that the number that we attribute most is seven. I use seven a lot. And what the experiment is not about how common seven is, but more about the fact that once you actually achieve what you think happiness is, or when you create this preconceived framework of this is what my happiness looks like, when you actually get that happiness, when you actually get to the other side, the answer is seven. And you get over that fact very, very quickly. So that's why I think that's, that's the reason why a lot of people, they're the happiest when they're actually pursuing something they want to do versus when you actually get there. Then our insatiable needs of greed, we want more, we want more. Right grasses, like grass should be greener where your feet are, but grasses tends to be greener on the other side. So sure. I think you were able to cross out by actually attempting and giving a shot, which yeah. I think most people will lack the courage of. Yeah. One thing I'd like to circle back with a little bit is the element or one of the elements that you said make you feel the most alive or the most fulfilled, and that's coaching other coaches. Uh, one thing that I haven't really talked about on air is that I pursued a nutrition certification over the past year, wow. but I felt uh, like my feet in quicksand a little bit of like not knowing where to start. Maybe not quicksand because I'm not sinking, but like mud of I don't know how to move forward because I have the knowledge. I mean, obviously there's so much more to learn, but I read a coaching nutrition manuscript book, learned the lessons, but I feel like actually applying that knowledge of coaching is way more difficult than actually knowing like I know how to take care of my body, but I don't know how to teach other people how to do the same. So as a coach who loves instructing other coaches, what are some of the most important things that you would focus on? Or when you're trying to encourage behavior change in your clients, what are the most effective ways? Because like you said earlier, you can't just tell them what to do because that becomes a dictatorship. What methodologies and or strategies have you found really allow your clients to make significant progress and feel supported and energized throughout the journey? Oh, so that's a great question, Aiden. And so one of the things that I like to use is uh, it's called the apprenticeship model. So this was shared to me when I was in college. I actually picked this up from a friend, but it's, uh, it's I go, you go, and then we go together. So if I'm training a new coach, I'm training someone new how to be an Orange Theory coach, I would have them watch me do some of the movements, have, have them watch me go through some of the commands over the microphone. 
And so it gives them an opportunity to kind of digest what's going on, gives them an opportunity to observe, you know, because we learn through observation. And then we also learn through doing. So the second step would be having them do it. So whatever, whatever it was that we're working on, having them do it, having them go through the exercises, having them get on the mic, you know, having them teach a mock class. And then the last step is that we go together. So that's where it becomes more cooperative. That's where whoever I'm working with is producing an action or, or working on something specific. And then while they're doing it, I'm giving them feedback as we go. What I found is that this has worked really well for me in sales and fitness and coaching. This has worked really well for me, so I tend to gravitate towards it. But there's no one-size-fits-all approach. I think it's important to, as a coach to understand what type of a coach you are. So there's three different types of coaches, or three different styles, actually. We need to find out what kind of what style of coaching you have. So there's submissive, there's cooperative, and then there's direct. So submissive is basically... You do whatever you want. <laughs> Cooperative is, hey, this is what I think we should do, but if you have a better way, you know, I'm open to hearing about it. And then the direct style is, is more concrete. We need to work this way and this is why. So I think those three styles can interchange sometimes depending on the situation. But I think as a coach, we have to identify where we kind of fall. And once we're able to identify what our style is, then we can work towards Coming, uh, kind of more fine-tuning our, our approach. Absolutely. I would guess that you find yourself as a cooperative coach, kind of yeah. to where the, the client may be and kind of meeting them where they are. I know you'd mentioned that before. Definitely. If you were to put it on a scale, submissive, cooperative, direct, I would say I'm, I'm probably right around the middle. And then once you assess where you are, what does it look like on the other side when you're looking at a specific client? I'm sure you have different coaching styles or methodologies depending on who you're working with. I really like to cater my coaching approach to each each person individually. I really like to find out their personality type first. So like, are they more performance oriented? Are they more security driven? What do they value? Usually as a coach, you're able to identify that through dialogue and through conversation. Once I know what kind of personality type they are, it's easier for me to connect with them as a coach and it's easier to give direction as well. But I think the more you can get to know your clients and the, and the stronger your personal relationship to them is, the more effective you can be as a coach. Mm-hmm. And that probably trickles into sales and business as a whole, right? Whether Absolutely. Leadership, sales. I think to me, that's the one thing that makes your story so powerful and interesting is like not only is it fitness, but you also have the whole call it corporate America side, sales side, healthcare kind of situation. I wonder if we could kind of shift gears a little bit from fitness towards sales. Obviously, we don't have to go into like the details of it, but just kind of mindset, holistic approaches to fitness versus approaches to sales. In regards to sales, the root word of sales is called, it's sell-en, S-E-L-L-A-N. It's a Latin word. It means to give. And so, you know, when I think of sales, I don't think of transactions. I don't think of me going in there and, and trying to force someone to buy something. Mm-hmm. I, I always think about what is it that I can give to this person? And that's always been my approach in fitness and in the healthcare side. I think it's important to identify what people are looking for because every, everything in life, everything we do is a, is a give and a take. If I'm having a conversation with someone and they're talking to me about how much they 
love using Amazon and how easy it is for them and how they're able to get free shipping. That person who's talking about Amazon and then I go out and I use Amazon, whoever shared Amazon with me just sold me Amazon, right? But they weren't actually thinking about selling it to me. They were just sharing and they were just giving me advice and they were sharing what's worked for them. So my, my mentality with sales has always been, what is it that I can give? Leading with service, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. I think service is important. You know, I know the format of sales that I'm in now is uh, it's all service driven. It's account driven. So every account is different. Every person we interact with is different. We have to create meaningful dialogue to find out if what we're offering is something that can add value to, to one's life. Yeah, and I think that's like the difference between like transformational interaction versus like transactional yeah. interaction, right? Because I didn't know that before. That's a cool fact about sales actually means to give with Latin. That's a cool thing I learned today. I think in any business setting and in any industries, whether it's nonprofit, there's less of sales component to nonprofit everywhere I work in, but in the private sector, right? I think sales and the industry of sales often get a, a very negative stigma and bad rap. Yeah. I know a lot of, uh, when I was a consultant years ago and a lot of my friends are still in the, in the fields, in the private sector, most of us hate salespeople because when we think about sales, you think about people shoving their agenda down your throat or they're trying to extract the maximum volume from you, the client versus the interactions or trying to uh, provide values through delivery, right? And I think what you gave the definition really helped. Are there other things or lessons that you learned? Are you the tactics that you use to become like an effective salesman? Because the fact is, even though myself and a lot of my friends look down on sales as an, it's an evil job, because when you think about sales, I think about you wearing fancy clothes, buying your, taking your client out to like a fancy dinner and you're just looping them up for the sales <laughs> that, that you're about to pitch, right? <laughs> and then, yeah. but it, it sounds like it's, it's less of that and more of what type of value, what type of things can you provide and deliver and give to the client you're interacting with. The fact of the matter is sales is such a practical and useful skill. I think it's one of the very underrated skills because when you're giving a public speech, you're selling on your brand, you're selling on the ideas, you're selling yeah. on the content. When you're doing podcasts right now, you're selling on your stories, the lessons, and you're trying to better. When you're coaching, you're selling your personal brand of Amir, the head coach or the personal trainer. And I think a lot of people need to know the fundamentals or some sort of a sales tactics or skill sets, whatever you want to yeah. call them. So we would love for you to share some <laughs> of the things that have enabled your success in the sales. Whoever is asking questions is controlling the conversation. And that's in any aspect of life. That could be in a sales meeting. It could be with a, a mom, mom, dad with their kid. It could be a teacher and student. Whoever is asking questions is controlling the conversation. So, and that, that's a fact. So now that we, we understand that fact, how do you apply that? How do you apply that? And are you gonna apply it to help your client or are you gonna apply it to, just like you said earlier, to manipulate them? So I think the value comes in taking these skill sets and using it for good. You know, and, 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 and trying to add value to whatever it is that you offer, you know, as, as a salesperson or as a service, everyone is different. Again, and I, I really want to go back to what I said earlier with building the relationship. The stronger your relationship with your client, the, the more influence you'll have, the more positive influence you'll have, 
the more business you'll be able to get. Thank you for listening to another episode of Discover More. We release a new episode every Monday on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And would really appreciate if you have subscribed and shared this with your friends. We hope you enjoyed this episode and join us next week in the journey of discovering more through intentional dialogues.